Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. In our last episode, we explored the busy reign of King Andrianjaka, his standardization and canonization of Amerino religious practice surrounding Saint-Pierre, the expulsion of the Fasimba population from his territories, the birth of the Merina title of the Indivisible Sun, and finally, the establishment of a new Merina capital at the Rofa, or Fortress of Antanarifu. Today, we are going to mix things up a little bit. So far, each episode of this show has primarily been organized by ruler, with each episode focusing on a Merina king and their respective accomplishments. However, Andrian Jaka's two successors are primarily known for a project which overlapped both of their reigns, and dramatically transformed the history of Imerina. Today, we discuss the creation of the largest infrastructure project Madagascar has ever seen, the rice paddies of Betsimitatra. Season 4, Episode 9, Betsimitatra, A Wonder of Agricultural Engineering. It bears repeating that, by the reign of Andrianjaka in the mid-17th century, Imerina was still a small, lightly populated region of Madagascar. Now, I know I've been repeating this sentiment a lot lately, but I think it's important to highlight this fact since the mid-to-late-17th century will be the beginning of a process by which this would change. Due to a lack of census data, we don't have much information on the population of Imerina during this time period. Common estimates for Imerina during the rule of Ralambu and Andrianjaka typically places the population of the kingdom in the 8 to 12,000 range. Meanwhile, just 150 years later, near the start of the 19th century, a census conducted by a later Marina king recorded a free population of almost 300,000 in Marina alone, not to mention a large population of over 100,000 enslaved workers as well. This population curve, representing a 33 to 50 times ratio of growth depending on your original estimate, is absolutely insane. The enormous population growth in Imerina throughout the 17th and 18th centuries is also observable in the unrivaled population density in that region compared to the rest of the island. When the first colonial government of Madagascar eventually took its own census, they would find that the average population density in Imerina was approximately 16 people per square kilometer, compared with an average of just one person per square kilometer on the rest of the island. Now, as we'll see in coming episodes, there are multiple factors that contribute to this impressive population growth. Of course, the Imerina being surveyed in the early 19th century was quite a bit geographically larger than Imerina in the mid-17th century. There was also the matter of migration from other parts of the island into Imerina, both in the form of voluntary migration and involuntary enslavement. Regardless, it is undeniable that the single most important factor in population growth is food production. When it comes to population growth, food production represents what is called a population ceiling. Essentially, as the population grows, a population ceiling is the point where consumption exceeds production, leading to famine. As long as net production remains positive, that is that the amount of food produced can keep up with the growing demand for food from a growing number of residents, then the population has the potential to keep growing on and into the future. Prior to and during the rule of Andrianjaka, the volume of food production drastically limited the potential growth of Imerina's population. Food production in this early era of Imerina was quite inefficient. The region relied on a few different key crops, such as garlic, bananas, and various animal products, but by far the most important staple which made up the bulk of the Imerina people's caloric intake was the staple crop of all of Madagascar, rice. 
Rice had been the primary food in the Malagasy diet since, well, forever. According to Malagasy mythology, rice was such a wonderful food that the creator of the universe, the one true god Andrea Manitra, believed that the small grains were far too precious for mere humans to eat. The one true god, Andrea Manitra, believed that these small grains were food for divine beings alone. They were far too precious for mere humans to possibly enjoy. In fact, the grains were only brought to humanity by some tricky deception on the part of the god's daughter. If you want to hear more about this fascinating myth about how rice, the food of the gods, was brought to earth, as well as how a dispute between two giants almost made humanity starve to death, then I highly recommend that you check out our newest premium episode at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. Your support goes a long way towards supporting the show and allowing the podcast to keep the lights on. Also, did I mention that we're almost to our next community goal? As of recording this, we only need three more people to sign up to support the show in order to hit our community growth goal. When we hit it, then I'm going to produce a special in-depth miniseries about the topic of you guys' choice. A similar goal in the past is how, for example, we ended up with that mini-series all about the Sokoto Khalifat. Making that series was a total blast, and based on the feedback I got, it seemed like you guys liked it too. So check us out and support us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. It really goes the distance in helping the show keep up. And to those already supporting the show, thank you. So in this next part of the show, we're going to get a little bit into agricultural science. And this is the part where I need to let you know that my formal education is in history and political economy. That is to say, when it comes to agricultural science, I am a total layperson. I like to be confident that I'm giving you guys legit information, so I research this section pretty hard and talk to a friend of mine with a career in agricultural science, just to make sure that I wasn't saying anything too stupid. Uh, however, this is just letting you know that despite my best efforts, it's possible and even likely that some concepts in this section might be a little bit oversimplified or incorrectly summarized, and uh, I'm sorry about that. So, when it comes to growing rice, there are two very common ways of cultivating the crop. The first, more common version of rice cultivation is wet rice. When you close your eyes and picture a rice field, this is likely the image that conjures in your mind. Terraces of water with little green rice plants sticking out of the top. However, wet rice cultivation is not the only way to grow the crop. Many different parts of the world practice, well, dry rice cultivation, in which the rice is simply planted in the dry ground like most other crops are. Dry rice paddies often resemble a typical field of wheat or millet more than rice, producing a landscape of golden brown stalks that flow in the breeze. Both methods have their advantages and their shortfalls. Of course, the biggest shortfall of wet rice production is, well, the absurd amount of water consumption. And this was a major problem for Highland Madagascar. If you remember, all the way back in our first episode of this season, we looked at the geography of Madagascar and noted the bipolar pattern of rainfall in the island's interior. The monsoon winds bring heavy rain for about four months a year, followed by an extended period of practically no rainfall. This pattern of precipitation, in which rain is almost entirely packed into one season of the year, meant that it was practically impossible to supply enough water for wet rice cultivation in Highland Madagascar. So, dry rice cultivation was the only option. The problem, though, is that the soil on Madagascar made dry rice farming quite inefficient. Malgasy soil, especially in the highlands, suffers from a severe scarcity of nutrients. The solution to this problem was a technique called slash-and-burn agriculture, 
in which the foliage that is cleared while making space for a farm is set on fire. The ash from the burning foliage is then scattered around the land, providing helpful nutrients to the soil. Now, slash-and-burn farming has something of a bad reputation these days. And I was told that this reputation is not entirely without justification, but also a little misunderstood by the public. Now, slash-and-burn agriculture is often criticized for three negative effects that it has on the environment. Firstly, clear-cutting areas of land can cause pretty serious deforestation. Secondly, it only improves the nutrient quality of the land for a short time, leading to long-term decay in soil quality. And thirdly, all that wood burning causes serious greenhouse gas emissions. Now, none of these criticisms are wrong per se, but apparently slash-and-burn farming, when done properly and responsibly, is not quite as harmful as it is sometimes made out to be. Particularly, if the extent of clear-cutting is managed responsibly and paired with replanting, the deforestation associated with the practice can be prevented quite easily. So too can the nutrient stripping if crops are properly rotated. The greenhouse gas issue is kind of unavoidable though, but weren't as relevant of a global threat at this time as they are today. When related to Madagascar, the question is whether or not these steps to mitigate the damage were actually performed. On the soil front, it seems like the answer is mostly yes. In addition to rice, there's pretty good evidence that Malgasy slash and burn farmers incorporated crop rotations of yams and garlic to preserve the soil quality of their farms. Deforestation is another story, though. Pollen samples from highland Madagascar show that the region underwent substantial deforestation from the 10th to the 16th centuries. By the reign of Andrianjaka, most of highland Madagascar already resembled the largely barren and treeless environment that it is today, rather than the dense forests of prehistory. With the environmental impact aside, slash-and-burn dry rice agriculture in Madagascar was undeniably suboptimal in terms of efficiency. One of the biggest disadvantages of dry rice agriculture, in general, is that it leaves the rice exposed to weeds and pests. Weeds could easily make their way into rice paddies, and were especially dangerous in Madagascar, since they sucked up the few valuable nutrients from the already poor soil. But the bigger threat was pests, particularly the Malgasy migratory locust. These tiny insects have tormented the farmers of Madagascar since time immemorial, and could even become an apocalyptic threat in bad years. For example, the longest locust plague on record in Malgasy history lasted more than a decade. Think about that. An entire 10 years of being unable to harvest your crops because an unending swarm of insects devours them all. The most obvious solution to these problems is, of course, wet rice cultivation. Despite the fact that wild rice typically grows on land, Rice plants have an interesting biological quirk in which they are uniquely resilient to growing under shallow water, conditions which kill the vast majority of common agricultural weeds. Furthermore, underwater rice plants are protected from locust swarms and most other agricultural pests, since these pests are unable to reach the rice plants under the water. If only there was enough water to perform wet rice cultivation, then all of these factors that limited food production in highland Madagascar would no longer be a problem. The exact timetable and process behind what happened next is more than a little unclear. What we can say for certain, though, is that starting around the time of Andrianjaka's rule, perhaps during the back end of his own reign or the early years of his successors, Imerna underwent a staggering agricultural revolution. An innovative new technique of rice cultivation gradually spread throughout the Malgasy Highlands, 
phasing out the old system of slash-and-burn dry rice farming. The new, more efficient system replaced the practice of burning foliage for nutrients with a new way of bringing nutrients into the soil. Instead of burning foliage, the farmer would graze a herd of cattle and then let the cattle trample all over their old field. As the cattle trampled the field, they would, uh, poop all over the place, leaving behind piles of valuable fertilizer in the form of their manure. Then, the newly fertilized fields were sowed with rice and, finally, flooded with protective water. Rice was planted twice a year, once in the beginning of the rainy season and again in the early months of the dry season. The question remains, though. Wet rice cultivation requires enormous quantities of water. So, where were these Marina farmers getting it from? How were they maintaining enough water throughout the dry season at all? Well, the answer was a series of complex, coordinated irrigation methods. In the dry season, water for rice paddies was derived primarily from two sources. The first was mountain runoff. Temperatures on Madagascar's mountains are rarely cold enough to produce snow, but during the waning months of the wet season, it's not uncommon for certain amounts of water to get trapped in the higher altitudes in the form of frost, and then gradually melt into runoff. This runoff, in addition to rainwater from the wet season, can accumulate at the higher elevations, allowing local farmers to turn this trapped water into reservoirs. These small reservoirs, if used responsibly, could irrigate a town's rice fields for an entire dry season. However, if the wet season came a little earlier than expected, this accumulated water could become a problem, as the added rainwater on top of the already filled rice paddy could flood and cause serious damage to surrounding homes and fields. To more efficiently preserve and distribute water, as well as to prevent flooding, each terrace of the paddy featured a small dam with holes in it. These holes could be plugged up to prevent water from transferring from terrace to terrace, or unplugged to let the terraces drain and prevent flooding. Farmers could also use this system to drain their fields when they needed their cattle to fertilize them. This method of wet rice cultivation, which relied on mountain runoff for its hydraulic supply, began to crop up around Antanarifu during the reign of Andrianjaka and continued into the reign of his successor. Despite the fact that, in our last episode, Andrianjaka pledged that his brother's descendants would succeed him as the next ruler of Amerina, uh, he kinda lied. He imitated his grandfather Andrea Manelo and took a non-direct approach to the issue of succession. In fact, he even used the same loophole, by planting his son on the throne and then forcing that son to marry the daughter of his brother, ensuring that, in a roundabout sense, his brother's line was still technically inheriting the throne if you don't think about it too hard. His brother, Andrian Tampoco Indrindra, of course, didn't really care enough to put up a fight, and if he had, he didn't really possess the political power to do anything about it anyways. So as a result, Andrian Jaka's successor was his own son, a man named Andrian Tsikata Andrea, or the prince above all princes. Both Andrian Tsikata Andrea, as well as his own son and successor, would spend the greater part of their reigns focused on improving the food production infrastructure of Emerina. Particularly, King Andrea Tsikata Andrea spent a tremendous amount of effort in transforming the area surrounding Antanarifu into the most productive rice farm not only in Imerina, but in Madagascar more generally. The motive behind this undertaking was twofold. Obviously, such a large centralized farm would provide an efficient source of food for his people. But perhaps just as importantly, the creation of such a large rice paddy would go a long way in evolving his capital city into the main center of economic life in Imerina. The best location for this farm was a large stretch of flat valleys surrounding the Rofa of Antanarifu, called 
Betsimi Tatra, the plain with its unusually flat topography, relative lack of residents currently living there, and location that received more than enough mountain runoff was the perfect candidate for such a project. The only problem was that, with all that runoff, the area had become a wetland. The landscape was overgrown with umbrella papyrus, and filled with stagnant, mosquito-saturated water. Such a project, if it was even possible, would require a massive dedicated labor force. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. The project of transforming the swamp into useful agricultural land, if it was even possible, would require a massive dedicated labor force. Fortunately, the Fanampuana system of corvée labor was available for just such a project. On the orders of the king, Andreana from around Madagascar demanded the local demes and Hofa families under their control to bring all surplus workers to Antanarefu. Through the might of this efficiently organized pool of labor at his disposal, the king of Imerina managed to clear a substantial section of the Betsinitatra swamps and replace them with fields of runoff-sourced wet rice terraces. The new system of wet rice farms in the Betsimitatra functioned as intended. The newly centralized system of rice production, combined with efficient use of runoff irrigation, ensured that rice production in Imerina reached new heights. Additionally, Antanarifu began to rapidly attract new farmers, interested in reaping the benefits of working on these efficiently managed plots of wet rice farmland. However, while this system was a marked improvement over what came before, it was far from perfect. The problem with the runoff system of wet rice farming was that, well, at the end of the day, it did still rely on rainwater. Sure, the more efficient management of water allowed for levels of rice production that would have otherwise been unthinkable, but the system was still very vulnerable to drought. In fact, by shifting such a large portion of his kingdom's riziculture to the wet rice system, Andrian Sikatandria was kind of balancing his kingdom on a hair-thin tightrope. While dry rice cultivation produced much smaller yields than wet rice, previous generations' reliance on dry rice had provided them with a degree of resilience towards drought. Now that wet cultivation was a major factor in Merina riziculture, if an unexpectedly long dry season drained the paddies of their much-needed water, then a considerable portion of the Merina rice crop could fail, resulting in disastrous famine. In order to prevent such a catastrophe, Andrea Andrea had to procure a new source of irrigation water. Unfortunately, Antananarifu lacked a nearby source of fresh water. The nearest source was the Ikopa River. This river started its flow several dozen miles southwest of Antananarifu, before merging with the larger Betsiboka River. The Ikopa was dozens of miles north of Antananarifu at its closest point. The only way to ensure a nearby source of river water was to change the course of the river itself and this would be no easy task. In the largest single effort of engineering yet seen in the history of Madagascar, the king levied the Fanampuana once again. On the king's orders, dozens of miles of canals were dug to link the Copa to the Betsimetatra. 
Onwards, a secondary system of canals were dug, relinking the canal to the natural flow of the Acopa in order to prevent flooding. Finally, a series of dikes were constructed, allowing the river to form extensive reservoirs. Similarly to the smaller field dams, the dikes along the river were also outfitted with holes which could be plugged and unplugged. As a result, river water could be let downstream in the case of a drought, or it could be maintained upstream in the case of floods. Once the monumentous project was completed, the dams were unplugged, and the course of the Copa River flowed freely throughout the newly excavated canals. Antananarifu was now valuable riverfront property, with a consistent source of irrigation water even in a long dry season. With a reliable water source secure, the rice production of Imerina could now rise uninhibited. Andrian Cicata Andrea would not live to see his agricultural megaproject reach its full potential, though. His exact date of death is unknown, though it is often assumed to be around 1650 AD. After his passing, the responsibility to continue this royal project fell to his son, a prince by the name Andrian Sinito Via Min Andrian Daibe. On a side note, I always try to be as respectful to the culture being discussed as possible, and in my opinion, part of that respect includes pronouncing the full name of all figures being discussed. After all, names have specific meanings. In this case, Andrea Sinito Mia Vin Andrea Deibe means, essentially, the prince who is the most important among princes. However, there is a point in Merina history where the names become so long that, well, Pronouncing them in full is simply more inconvenient than it is worth, and to the point where I think most people would start to have a hard time differentiating between them at all. As a result, not only here, but for the rest of the season, I will be occasionally abbreviating some of the names of important Merina historical figures. So, in order to preserve the original meaning of this name, but in order to give my vocal cords and your memories a bit of a break, I'm just going to refer to this Mania King as Andrean de Ibe. With all that said, upon inheriting the position of the King of Imerina, one of Andrean de Ibe's most important goals was the extension of the Betsimitatra rice fields. Most of the expansion ordered by his father had taken place in the region immediately west of the Rofa of Antananarifu, so most of the open land in the area had already been developed. Rather, Andrean de Ibe decided to begin developing the land south of the capital, building further dikes and canals to reshape the river's flow to match his ambitions. From there, the king ordered his two sons to direct the construction of different dikes on the northern and southern edges of the newly elongated canal, each of which would control the flow of water into two rice paddies on each side. Keep these two sons in mind, by the way, because, as we'll see next episode, this story has been of a formative moment in their childhoods. The new rice fields were divvied up among smaller landowners, and doubled the area of wet rice farming in Betsimitatra, substantially increasing the rice production of Imerina as a whole. The dramatic increase of rice production in Betsimitatra fundamentally transformed the Merina economy. While many communities in rural Imerina remained subsistence rice growers, the sudden surplus of rice resulted in the creation of large classes of people who no longer needed to grow their own food to subside. Many demes across Imerina, with their food needs satisfied by the new, more efficient wet rice farming system, now dedicated a portion of their land and labor to new economic endeavors. One of the newly ascendant economic ventures was silk. While silk is mostly associated with Eastern Asia, believe it or not, there are multiple species of silk-producing worms native to Madagascar. This unique type of silk was a highly valued commodity, not only across Madagascar, 
but would even go on to become one of the island's most valuable exports, with merchants from East Africa, Europe, and Asia placing great value on the beautiful textile. In addition to silk, other cash crops are also cultivated, including spices like ginger and peppers. Deme's also invested newly spare labor in mining, extracting iron from Imerina's mountainous landscape, as well as processing professions like smiths, weaving, and pottery, diversifying the Merina economy. Of course, as alluded to at the start of this episode, the advent of intensive wet rice production started an unprecedented spike in population growth throughout the Malgasy Highlands as well. This meant not only new bodies to work in the fields, but new consumers for other industries as well. In a sense, the advent of intensive wet rice farming served as the true beginning of a new era in Merna history. While the region was still relatively insignificant in the island's political scene, it was gradually edging closer to its eventual role as the island's economic and population center. The city of Antanarifu was itself rapidly expanding, largely as a result of its proximity to the island's most productive rice fields. However, while the long-term changes brought by the rise of intensive wet rice agriculture were clearly significant, the exact manner of how the practice changed Imerina remains a controversial question. In 1957, German political scientist Karl Wittfogel published his equal parts influential and controversial book, Oriental Despotism. The book, which would widely influence Western anthropology, economics, and historical thinking for multiple decades, sought to explain why, from the European perspective, Asian society seemed so innately static, reactionary, and authoritarian. Now, Wittfogel's explanation for the supposed stagnancy of Asian societies revolved around his ideas of how Asian governments functioned. According to Wittfogel, complex Asian societies arose due to the emergence of a class of hydraulic despots. These despots maintained their power through tight control over their nation's water supplies, and were therefore awarded with unimpeachable levels of authority. As a result, everyone in these societies were essentially slaves to their rulers, powerless to engage in class struggle, and thus the conditions did not exist for social or political progression. Needless to say, this premise on its own is more than a little controversial. Even the core assumption of this book, that Asian societies of the past were innately less dynamic and more oppressive than their European counterparts, has, understandably, met with a ton of criticism. Much less as explanation for why that is supposedly the case. While I'd love to get deeper into the ideas of Wittfogel and his critics, we do need to keep things focused on Madagascar. And, for the most part, Wittfogel's book focused pretty much entirely on Asia, and therefore mostly neglected Africa, with the exceptions of Egypt, Nubia, and Somalia, which received some brief analysis. While Wittfogel himself never applied his ideas to Madagascar, many of his supporters and disciples in anthropology and history would go on to do so. After all, the development of Manina wet rice cultivation does kind of resemble Wittfogel's idea of hydraulic despotism. You have a ruler, a despot, who derives some or most of his power from the ability to control and coordinate the water supply of his kingdom. Even the idea of Fanampuana, the corvée labor system, seemingly mirrors the idea of universal slavery, that all people in the hydraulic kingdom are, in a sense, slaves to their ruler. Supporters of the hydraulic despotism thesis would long dominate the academic view on Madagascar, writing that control over irrigation water was the main root driving force behind every political and social development throughout the history of Imerina. 
However, this theory has declined in its dominance not only in the study of Madagascar, but throughout the historical profession as a whole. And, in my opinion, that's for pretty good reason. The main argument that critics of the thesis have leveled, myself included, is that the hydrocentric hypothesis largely gets things backwards in the context of Imerina. It overlooks the fact that royal control over irrigation in Imerina occurred as a result of tight control over labor, rather than tight control over labor resulting from royal control over irrigation. Keep in mind, these irrigation projects required the excavation of dozens of miles of canals and a large number of dikes, both large and small. Merina kings were not able to secure access to large pools of labor because they could leverage their control over water. They had control over water because they had access to a gigantic pool of labor. Finally, there's the fact that even with control over hydraulic systems, that Merina kings were far from invincible, unchallenged despots. Hydraulic despotism theory claims that a hydrodespotic state leaves no room for the development of class conflict. And as we'll see in our next episode, such a phenomenon was not lacking in Madagascar. Join us next episode, as a combination of political scandal and brewing class conflict leads to a group of Hofa overthrowing the king of Imerina, and appointing one of the most influential and famous leaders in Malagasy history. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like our show, then we would greatly appreciate if you could help support the show and our project of freely available online history education. You can do this by supporting us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, or by sharing the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy learning about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayo Fagbamie, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Mpenza, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sabalavie, Evan Edwards, Pascal Mokocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwabadike, Sheyuno Lorontimayen, Kwajo Amankwa, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, Samuel Badu, and Rasan Fergiani, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really, really means a lot.